Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1096, with a release and air date of Saturday, February 29th, 2020, our Leap Year edition. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. You have found North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Now, in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1096 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The FCC turns down an amateur operator's appeal to renew his amateur license. We will have all the details. A Pennsylvania law protects an amateur operator and at the same time frustrates his neighbors. The ARRL and AMSAT file in opposition to the FCC's proposal to delete the 3.4 gigahertz amateur allocation. A SpaceX resupply mission to the International Space Station is carrying brand new Eris ham radio gear, including a new British-made antenna system. Interference from smart meters is still an ongoing issue for amateurs on St. Kitts Island. Auxiliary communications training sessions will be held in conjunction with the upcoming Dayton Hamvention. And a 94-year-old amateur proves that it's never too late to upgrade. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, talks about the passing of the creator of Cut and Paste and asks if we are reaching the end of Moore's Law. Australia's own Arnold Benz shop, VK6FLAB, will answer the question, which comes first, the antenna or the radio? Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill takes a look at the 1940s VHF frequency allocation battles. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about replacing that old rusty rotor on your tower. And our own Bill Barron, the late N2FNH, answers the question, why don't we change amateur radio's image during his random access thought? And that's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our plush headquarters studio overlooking the Hudson River here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our custom facilities in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, where the maple syrup sap is beginning to flow, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in downtown Syracuse, New York, in the heart of Armory Square, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where winter has left the building, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. In a memorandum, opinion, and order, otherwise known as an MO&O, released on February 20th, 
the FCC turned down an appeal by William F. Crowell W6WBJ of Diamond Springs, California, of an administrative law judge's dismissal of Crowell's amateur radio license renewal application. For more details on this story, we go to League Headquarters, where Carla Pereira, KC1HSX, files this report. Chief Administrative Law Judge Richard Sippel had ruled in 2018 that Crowell, quote, failed to prosecute his application by refusing to attend a hearing scheduled by the judge, unquote, and that this warranted dismissal of Crowell's renewal application. The FCC Wireless Telecommunications Bureau had designated Crowell's renewal application for a hearing based on allegations that he had violated the Communications Act and FCC rules by causing intentional interference and by transmitting one-way communications indecent language and music on amateur frequencies. Crowell's amateur license expired in 2007, but he had been permitted under FCC rules to operate while his renewal application was pending. I'm Carla Pereira, KC1HSX. The hearing was set to be held in Washington, D.C., and Crowell filed a notice of appearance certifying that he would appear and present his case. The case was interrupted by what the FCC in the MO&O called a hiatus of several years, during which Crowell's petition to disqualify the judge was pending. In August 2016, the FCC imposed a $25,000 fine on Crowell for intentional interference and transmitting prohibited communications. The FCC said in a forfeiture order that the penalty is based on the full base forfeiture amount, as well as an upward adjustment reflecting Mr. Crowell's decision to continue his misconduct after being warned that his actions violated the Communications Act and the Commission's rules. The FCC noted that Crowell did not deny making the alleged transmissions, but argued in large part that they were protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution, the forfeiture order said. The February 20th Memorandum Opinion and Order does not reference the forfeiture order nor its disposition. When the renewal application litigation resumed in 2017, Crowell asked that the hearing be moved to the Sacramento, California area, arguing that he could not afford to travel to Washington. Sippel denied the motion. In the dismissal order, the judge responded to Crowell's refusal to attend a hearing in Washington, D.C., by granting the Enforcement Bureau's motion to dismiss Crowell's application, the FCC said in its memorandum, opinion, and order. The administrative law judge held that Crowell's refusal to attend a hearing in Washington, D.C., constituted a failure to prosecute, and thereby effectively violated Section 1.221, Subpart C of the Rules, which requires dismissal if an applicant fails to commit to appear on the date fixed for hearing. The judge agreed with the Enforcement Bureau that many of the arguments Crowell raised on appeal are not properly before us in reviewing the dismissal order and should be disregarded. Crowell said he will file an appeal with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals under Sections 402, Subpart B and C of the Communications Act. He said in an email that although he believes he has the right to stay on the air in the meantime, he is trying to clarify that point with the Enforcement Bureau and would stay off the air temporarily until then. He said the FCC's decision was based on an incorrect premise that he had waived his right to a field hearing, 
something he called a constitutional right. Crowell's amateur license expired in 2007, but he has been permitted, under FCC rules, to operate while his renewal application remains pending. A Windsor Township, Pennsylvania resident, whose neighbors were upset over her amateur radio tower, is within her rights to have the antenna on her property, township officials confirmed on Monday. An engineer went out to the site to inspect the 40-foot tower and ensure it didn't pose a safety threat to neighbors. Township engineer Chris Kraft told the Board of Supervisors at the meeting Monday, and based on that review, that they feel that the tower is structurally safe. Lindsay Fowler is the homeowner who built the tower on her property last September. Fowler is a licensed amateur radio operator, according to the FCC records, and her license is valid through December of 2021. Mark McClure, one of the neighbors who lives near Fowler, told the board in October that he and several other neighbors were opposed to the tower and that it should be removed, according to minutes from the October 21st meeting. McClure said the tower was an eyesore in the neighborhood and that he and others were concerned about the structural safety of the tower were it to fall, as well as the potential unknown health hazards from exposure to radio frequencies. The neighbors were also worried about a decrease in their property values, McClure said. There's a similar tower installed just a few houses down the street from Fowler. At the latest supervisor's meeting, McClure said Fowler approached several neighbors before installing the tower to ask if they'd oppose it. She pointed out to the Starview Drive Tower as an example as to what it would look like. McClure said he told Fowler he never noticed the Starview Drive Tower, and he wasn't opposed to her installing something similar, but he told the supervisors he didn't realize how large Fowler's tower would be. Neither Fowler nor her neighbors could be reached for comment. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. ARRL has filed comments opposing an FCC proposal to delete the 3.3 to 3.5 GHz secondary amateur allocation. Carla Pereira, KC1HSX, files this report on this story from League Headquarters in Newington. The comments, filed on February 21st, are in response to an FCC Notice of Proposed Rulemaking in which the FCC put forward a plan to remove existing non-federal secondary radio location and amateur allocations in the 3.3 to 3.55 gigahertz band and relocate incumbent non-federal operations. ARRL pointed to amateur radio's decade-long experience observing and experimenting with radio wave propagation in the band. That includes mesh networks, amateur television networks, weak signal long-distance communication, earth-moon-earth or moon-bounce communication, beacons used for propagation study, and amateur satellite communications. In its comments, ARRL argued that it would be premature to remove the current secondary amateur radio allocation. I'm Carla Pereira, KC1HSX. The FCC's proposal was in response to what's called the Mobile Now, or Making Opportunities for Broadband Investment and Limiting Excessive and Needless Obstacles to Wireless Act, enacted in 2018 to make new spectrum available for mobile and fixed wireless broadband use. 
ARRL noted that amateur radio has a long history of successful coexistence with primary users of the band. There is no reason suggested by the commission or known to us why the secondary status for amateur radio operations should not be continued for the indefinite future, ARRL said in its comments. We understand that secondary commercial users are less flexible than amateur radio users and may desire to relocate to protect continued provision of services and service quality. Radio amateurs, by contrast, benefit from having technical knowledge and no customer demands for continuous service quality, more flexibility to make adjustments, and often have the technical abilities necessary to design and implement the means to coexist compatibly with the signals of primary users. This spectrum should not be removed from the amateur radio secondary allocation and left unused, ARRL told the FCC. Only at a later time may an informed assessment of sharing opportunities be made in the specific spectrum slated for reallocation. This depends upon the congressionally mandated NTIA studies of sharing or relocation options that have yet to be completed and, if all or part of the spectrum is reallocated, the nature and location of build-out by the non-federal users. The NTIA oversees spectrum allocated to federal government users. ARRL noted that radio amateurs have established extensive infrastructure for the current band and are engaged in construction and experimentation that includes innovative mesh networks and amateur television networks that can be deployed to support public service activities. With the NTIA report addressing the 3.1 to 3.55 gigahertz spectrum not expected until late March, ARRL said, We do not yet know how much spectrum below and above the amateur secondary allocation may be reallocated to non-federal users and what opportunities may exist or be developed to share that spectrum with new primary users and systems. Even if suitable new spectrum could be found for the existing amateur uses, which is difficult before the Spectrum Musical Chairs activity is concluded, the costs to radio amateurs would be significant and be borne with no contravailing public benefit, ARRL told the FCC. If the advent of new primary licensees forecloses some types of secondary operations, the amateur community will reevaluate the situation when some certainty exists, ARRL concluded. Meanwhile, AMSAT has also filed comments on the FCC Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, or NPRM in WT Docket 19-348, that proposes to delete the 3.3 to 3.5 GHz or the 9 cm amateur band and relocate incumbent non-federal operations. The band includes the 3.40 to 3.41 GHz amateur satellite service allocation. In its remarks, AMSAT said it opposes deletion of the allocation and stressed the necessity of having adequate microwave spectrum available for future amateur satellite projects, including AMSAT's golf program and the upcoming Lunar Gateway. AMSAT acknowledged that the 3.4 GHz amateur satellite service allocation is not currently used by any amateur satellites, 
and that it is unsuitable for worldwide communication because it is not available in ITU Region 1. AMSAT said a number of potential uses for the band remain, however, as worldwide usage of other available allocations increases. These potential uses include a future amateur satellite in geostationary orbit above the Americas, AMSAT said, explaining that the segment could support uplink or downlink frequencies for such a spacecraft without potential interference to worldwide activities involving space stations in high Earth or lunar orbit. The most desirable allocations for use as uplinks are between 2.4 GHz and 5.67 GHz, 80 MHz in all, AMSAT told the FCC. As many of the proposed uses include amateur television and high-speed data transmission with satellites in high Earth orbit or lunar orbit, these allocations may quickly become inadequate, AMSAT said. AMSAT said the 3.40 to 3.41 GHz allocation could be utilized as a command channel or secondary data downlink for AMSAT ground stations in ITU Region 2 without interfering the primary communications on the other allocations or other satellites utilizing these segments, AMSAT told the FCC. AMSAT said several non-amateur satellites use the broader 3.3 to 3.5 GHz amateur allocation, which also sees wide use for amateur radio mesh networking, EME or Earth-Moon-Earth communications and contesting. The amateur satellite service continues to provide immense value to the growing field of small satellites, AMSAT concluded. Experiments conducted by amateur satellites continue to inform the development of the commercial small satellite industry. Additionally, student participation in amateur satellite projects provides both inspiration for young men and women to pursue careers in the commercial satellite industry and practical experience for those careers. A strong and robust amateur satellite service will continue to benefit the public interest and inspire future developments in satellite technology, AMSAT said. Continued progress in achieving these goals requires adequate spectrum, especially in suitable microwave bands. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. The scheduled March 7th SpaceX CRS-20 mission to the International Space Station will include the initial amateur radio on the International Space Station Interoperable Radio System Flight Unit. The new Interoperable Radio System is the foundation of the ARIS Next Generation Amateur Radio System on the Space Station. The ARIS hardware team has built four flight units. The first will be installed on the ISS Columbus module. The second flight unit is expected to be launched on a later 2020 cargo flight to be installed in the Russian service module. NASA contracts with SpaceX to handle ISS resupply missions. The interoperable radio system represents the first major upgrade of the station's ARIS equipment. The package will include a higher power radio, an enhanced voice repeater, 
and updated digital packet radio, as well as slow-scan TV capability for both the U.S. and Russian space station segment. The new interoperational radio system consists of a custom-modified JVC Kenwood TMD710GA transceiver, an AMSAT-developed multi-voltage power supply, and interconnecting cables. Once at the space station, the interoperable radio system will be stowed for later installation. National regulators in St. Kitts have been called in to help contain interference the local utility company has caused hams on the island. The St. Kitts Nevis Anguilla Amateur Radio Society has been locked in an ongoing battle over RF interference, jamming, and noise, but the group's nevesis hasn't been a problematic ham or group of hams. It's been the so-called smart meters installed by the electric company on the island of St. Kitts. Smart meters keep track of a customer's use of electric energy and relay the data to the utility for billing and monitoring purposes. The leadership of the Radio Society has plans to meet with the National Telecommunications Regulatory Commission within the next few weeks to attempt to resolve the issue. The HAMS are receiving guidance and support, meanwhile, from officials at Region 2 of the International Amateur Radio Union. Despite the fact that the National Telecommunications Regulatory Commission sent the electric company a cease and desist order more than four months ago, St. Kitts hams continue to report issues on 40 meters and 80 meters. There are no smart meters installed on the island of Nevis. NASA has awarded more than $39.8 million through the agency's National Space Grant College and Fellowship Project to increase student and faculty engagement in STEM at community colleges, technical schools, and universities across the nation. Each award has a four-year performance period and a maximum value of $760,000 for fiscal year 2020. NASA awarded funds to 52 proposals aimed at attracting and retaining more students from institutions of higher education in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics programs. Awardees plan to use the funds to increase diversity and inclusion in STEM fields. Each selected submission aligns with goals of both the NASA mission directorates and the agency's Office of STEM Engagement to enable contributions to NASA's work, build a diverse, skilled future STEM workforce, and strengthen understanding of STEM through powerful connections at NASA. One awardee, the Arizona Space Grant Consortium, will provide funding for the Arizona STEM Challenges to Educate New Discoverers program which will allow students to participate in designing, building, and flying entry-level balloon payloads. Through each payload and launch, students will collect and study data while building excitement for careers in STEM. The ASCEND program will promote NASA and space grant to underrepresented student populations. On the East Coast, the Georgia Space Grant Consortium will bring internship opportunities to students from West Georgia Technical College and Atlanta Metropolitan State College. Both colleges will offer two local industry internships during the fall and spring semesters. Students from Atlanta Metropolitan State College enrolled in the Engineering Transfer Associate degree program will be eligible to apply as well. Nebraska Space Grant Consortium will continue offering project-based learning opportunities to students from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. As part of the program,
participating college students will be able to compete in the Lunabotic Challenge at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Working in teams, students will be tasked with creating an operational robot to demonstrate techniques and technology for mining minerals on the moon, a real-world problem NASA must solve in the agency's Moon to Mars Exploration Initiative and its Artemis program. This month, the NASA Space Grant Consortium celebrates its 30th anniversary of inspiring the next generation of explorers. NASA Space Grant Consortia operates in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. In addition, NASA partners with more than 1,000 affiliates, including colleges, universities, industry, museums, science centers, nonprofit organizations, and state and local agencies to enrich science and engineering education, research, and public outreach efforts for NASA's aeronautics and space projects. The National Space Grant College and Fellowship Project is managed by NASA's Office of STEM Engagement. Through NASA's Higher Education Program and Funding, the agency continues its tradition of investing in STEM education with the goal of developing authentic learning opportunities that are relevant to NASA's mission. These investments develop the skills needed to achieve the nation's exploration goals through a robust, diverse STEM workforce. For more information about the National Space Grant College and Fellowship Project, visit NASA on the web at go.nasa.gov. Representatives of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency will be on hand in conjunction with the Dayton Hamvention to conduct Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's nationally recognized National Incident Management System, ICS-compliant, OXCOM training course. The course will be held May 12th through the 14th at the Beaver Creek Fire Department Training Room in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Only 30 slots are available, and the registration cutoff is April 1. More than 3,000 radio amateurs from around the country have completed the course, which is aimed at training ham radio volunteers to support local, regional, and state governments with emergency communication services if requested. The course explains the structure of the Communications Unit, COMU, and how to provide emergency communications in a public safety context. It also goes deeper into the National Qualification System and the NIMS framework. Those who want to sign up for the CISA Department of Homeland Security OXCOM course must meet certain prerequisites and provide electronic scanned images of certain documents prior to registration. The prerequisites include a signed copy of a valid FCC-issued amateur radio license and FEMA-issued certificates IS-100, IS-200, IS-700, and IS-800 certificates. The public safety entity that you would support upon completing this course and its contact information. Applicants may attach scanned copies to an email with Hamvention Oxcom in the subject line. Information will be reviewed and applicants will be informed whether they have been selected for a seat in the course. There will be an intensive three-day version of the course with facilitated lectures and student exercises conducted by professional Oxcom instructors. The course will provide time for interactive discussions and exercises. This year's Dayton Hamvention will include an Oxcom forum will provide a look at the new OXCOM 509, which will become the official position description of OXCOM personnel within the proposed communications branch, the new OXCOM subcommittee of the Communications Section Task Force, and what's in store for OXCOM's future. 
We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Let me just log in here to my computer. And let's see, what is uh, what is new in the tech world? Oh, you're a geek, you're a nerd, you're into this stuff, you're a nerd, you're a geek. But now everybody uses it. You know, I mean, everybody's got a smartphone. Not everybody, but most everybody's got a smartphone. That's a pretty powerful computer in your pocket. You might have a computer at home. You probably have one at work. We're all sitting in front of screens all day, all night. And that's not that's the those are the obvious computers in your life. You you know, if you drive a car, you've got computers galore in your car. Everywhere we go now, we're surrounded. Smart home stuff, you know. Uh, Amazon's Echo. Google's assistant, uh, those are all, you know, little computers. We call it now computing at the edge. I think it's a, is that a Microsoft phrase or is it just a general? Microsoft uses it a lot because Microsoft's business has changed. You know, for years, really, Microsoft got into the computer business in the, uh, in the 80s with DOS, right? And then, uh, and then they made the first, well, it wasn't the first, far from the first, but they made a graphical operating system called Windows. I say far from the first, they were copying the Macintosh, which was copying Xerox <laughs> Park. So you can't really give them credit. But but they've gone far beyond uh, operating systems, software, and even hardware. Microsoft really is all about the cloud, about the operating a network center that everybody can use, store their data on, but also use for uh, computing. And that's why they call it computing at the edge. A computer is a computer at the edge because the cloud is the center. At least from Microsoft's point of view, the cloud's in the middle, the computers and the smart stuff. That's the stuff at the edge. I'm, I'm, I was thinking about this because the guy who worked at Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center, Larry Tesler, was the guy who, among others, showed Steve Jobs when he and a, a ragtag band came over from a little startup computer startup called Apple and uh, and Tesla was so proud of, they were all so proud of what they were doing. This is back in 1979. Gave them a little demo of uh, of of a user interface that was graphical with, with, with windows and menus and a, and a thing that Doug Engelbart had invented they called the mouse. Uh, it was pretty cool. Steve uh, told Larry Tesla, you're sitting on a gold mine. Why aren't you doing something with this technology? You could change the world. Xerox, it was just research for them. In fact, there was a book written about how Xerox invented the world and, and, and didn't make any money on it at all. Larry Tesler is famous for inventing cut and copy and paste. You ever use, you know, Control-X, Control-C, Control-V, cut, copy, paste? He thought that up. Nowadays, you think, well, that's obvious, but it wasn't. It wasn't. He, f- he thought up find and replace. It wasn't obvious. He was the guy who coined the term the browser. In, in his case, it wasn't browsing the internet. It was browsing the file system, the hard drive. He coined the term friendly user interface. We wouldn't have a Macintosh or Windows without Larry Tesler. He passed away this week at the age of 74. Uh, a real legend. 
in the industry. And I think today probably people aren't you know too aware of him. Uh, I certainly am, but I've been here a long time. I remember his contribution. And I think it's important uh, to market. He may not be as well known as Steve Jobs, but there wouldn't have been a Steve Jobs probably. <laughs> there weren't a Larry Tesler. So uh, RIP, rest in peace. Larry Tesler passed away at the age of uh, 74. He uh, said in an interview at the Computer History Museum a few years ago, if I ever hear somebody say something's impossible or extremely difficult, almost impossible, it's a challenge, and I always try to do it. He also, and I don't know if he won this one or not, this is a little more complicated to explain, he hated modes. A mode is when a computer is doing one thing and nothing else. So you've probably had the experience when a computer pops up a message on a screen, and you can't do anything else but answer that question, okay, or cancel. That's a mode, or a modal dialogue, as Larry Tesler would call it. And in the early days of computing, before the Mac, before, before Windows, modes were really common. There's a very popular text editor that's still in use called VI or, or VI. And VI, you're either editing or you're typing. You can't do both. <laughs> but, if, it, but Larry Tesler said there shouldn't be any modes. If you're in a word processor, you should be able to edit it and type at the same time. In fact, his license plate said no modes. And he pretty much won for a long time. I mean, Windows and Mac, you can have different things going on at once. But I have to say, I don't know if he was right. And it's kind of started to change. Do you use your computer full screen and switch between screens? That's modes. On an iPad, you don't have a choice. I mean, they've added multitasking. But really, an iPad, you're using one thing and then another. That's modes. That's modal. You're within your word processor. You can cut and paste and and edit and, and type, but you're only in the word processor. You can't. You have to swipe sideways or open a different app to be doing something else. That's modes. So I think maybe hum, the human brain is better suited to modes, to be honest with you, than modeless. But Larry Larry was a deep thinker, and he really was trying to make this easy, easier to use, user friendly. Certainly, we couldn't live without cut and copy and paste, right? I don't know if it was Larry who came up with the idea that it should be Control X C V. You know why it is, though. That's right by the control key. Cut, copy, paste. It's right there. XCV for easy typing. Uh, let's see. What else can we talk about? I woke up this morning to a fascinating story. We've talked a little bit, I think, about how Intel's uh, the big chip manufacturer that makes the processors in uh, most uh, computers, not so much phones, but in uh, the laptops and desktops, run up against a wall in... Uh, in manufacturing that's making it very difficult for some reason we don't know why for them to make new chips in they they dis, they designate these chips by the size of the wiring in the chip and uh, they describe it in billionths of a meter that's a nanometer and right now our chips are 14 nanometers and they really want to get down to 10 billionths of a meter that, i don't that's kind of impossibly small I don't, you know, usually they say, well, that's one-eighth of a human hair. I don't even know. I don't think it's even, it's like, um, well, it's microscopic, right? It's uh, 10 nanometers. They, they're having trouble doing it. Don't know why. There's an advantage. It's kind of a weird advantage you have in microprocessors uh, that the smaller the process gets, the less heat, the more efficient, the faster and oddly enough, the less expensive they get. So it's kind of a magical formula. It's one of the few things, you know, your car to get smaller, faster, better, that's generally costs more. <laughs> 
but not for a processor. It's a very different thing. We've run up against what they sometimes call Moore's Law. Moore's Law, which was formulated by Gordon Moore of uh, Intel back in the uh, dim, dark days of processors, I think before really the the microcomputer revolution in the 60s, was that microprocessors, the number of transistors, we, and that's the fundamental unit on a uh, on a micro on a chip a micro is a transistor the number of transistors we can get on a processor will double every 18 months and along with that roughly a doubling in speed every every year and a half and you know it's amazing because it's held true for decades it's starting to fall apart intel hasn't been able to double the number of transistors for some years now well there's i just read about a breakthrough that's uh, to me fascinating and may uh, bode well for the change in all of this. They, uh, the, the folks at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, which I think is in Holland, KIT, have created a, a, a transistor that uses a single atom. What? <laughs> what? You, I think you can't get smaller than that. I don't think, well, maybe you could. I should never say never, right? But this is a lot, one atom transistor. It works at room temperature. And, you know, you're getting this amazing benefit of, uh, of microprocessing again. It uses very little energy, about one ten thousandth of the energy that our current transistors and chips use. One ten thousandth. So imagine, we're getting now, I don't know how much smaller an atom is, but it's a lot smaller. It's a, one atom transistor. You know, your typical USB memory stick has several billion transistors, right? But imagine if it had several trillion transistors and it used one ten-thousandth of the power. Well, I guess if it had uh, several trillion, it would have to use one one-thousandth of the power, but that's still pretty good. Or one one-one-hundredth, whatever, I don't know. Orders of magnitude less. That's still pretty good. Now... I don't know how close they are to making this, but they are able to do it at room temperature. Uh, the single atom trans transistor in the past has worked, you know, at extremely low temperatures, like minus 273 degrees Celsius. But to have it work at room temperature is unbelievable. It's metal. No semiconductors are used. And that's why it's such low energy. Every once in a while, you know, you read stories like this and you think, well, the world's about to change and then nothing happens. So, you know, we see these, I see these breakthroughs and sometimes, for instance, I remember I was so excited by something called supercapacitors, which were these uh, devices that would hold a charge. They could be charged instantly, basically super batteries. They just never took off, except we've seen them in a few applications do you ever get an electric screwdriver that you charge in 30 seconds? That's a supercapacitor in there. And now... Maybe this will be the most widely used supercapacitor of all time. Samsung's putting a supercapacitor in the S Pen in the Note 9. So the pen holds a charge for 30 minutes, but you, if you want to get another 30 minutes, you just put it in the phone, and 20 seconds later, it's ready to go, supercapacitor. So these things come, but they take, they take time. We learned about supercapacitors a few years ago. Single-atom transistors, though, is the kind of thing that could really change the world. A few years ago, I might have talked to you about something called uh, cross-point technology. This is a kind of a 3D memory technology that Intel had announced. Three or four years later, they finally started coming out with cross-point-based 
memory and uh, storage just this year. And it's still, we're still waiting. It's kind of maybe a little hard to, you know, still wait, but it's going to be a, a real transformation in the speed of computing. So the good news is while we're hitting the, the limits of Moore's law, doesn't mean we're not getting better and faster. It's kind of amazing, kind of fascinating. Anyway, I'm glad you were here and I'm here and I'll be here next week. And I hope you'll come by and bring your friends too as we talk high tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. Ancient Amateur Archives. I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY. If Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, or Eugene O'Neill had been amateur radio operators, one of them certainly would have written a play about the VHF frequency allocation battle of the mid-1940s. For, except for sex, this event had all the elements of a great drama. Power, passion, politics, greed and sudden twists and turns in the plot were the hallmark of this epic battle. It hastened the destruction of probably the greatest man in the history of radio, solidified the stronghold of another in his quest for total television domination, doomed a viable alternative in the infant television industry, and gave birth to the predecessor of CB radio. Got your attention? Then let's open our playbills and read The Cast of Characters. The ARRL and the 50,000 amateur radio operators. Prior to World War II, hams were virtually the only major users of the UHF spectrum as the frequencies above 25 megacycles were then known. They had the use of the 10 meter band from 28 to 30 megacycles and 5 meters from 56 to 60 megacycles since the late 1920s, as well as a small slice of spectrum at 400 megacycles. In the late 1930s, the FCC had allocated two new amateur bands to amateurs, 2.5 meters from 112 to 116 megacycles, and 1.25 meters from 224 to 230 megacycles. Except for 10 meters, most of the operations on these frequencies were done with very simple equipment. Modulated oscillators and super-regenerative receivers were the mainstay of their activities. For those not familiar with this type of equipment, a modulated oscillator was a tube coupled to a tuned circuit directly on the desired frequency, which was modulated by another tube. Since crystal control and frequency multiplication were not used, the resulting signal varied in both frequency and amplitude when the oscillator was modulated. The only way to receive such an unstable signal was with a super-regenerative receiver. Invented by Major Edwin Armstrong in the early 1920s, the Super Jenny was extremely sensitive but very broad-banded. It gave off a loud rushing noise like an FM receiver unsquelched. 
A complete phone station of this type could be built with only three tubes, an important consideration for the Depression-era hams. Except for limited operation on the 112 through 116 megacycle band in World War II under WERS, or the War Emergency Radio Service, amateur stations had been silent since December 7, 1941. Now, late in 1944, with the end of the war in sight and new VHF-UHF tubes in production for the war effort, the ARRL was making plans for more bands above 25 megacycles. Major Edwin H. Armstrong The unquestioned father of modern radio, Major Armstrong had experienced several setbacks in the 1920s and 1930s, partly because of his secretive nature and uncompromising attitude. He had delayed in obtaining his original patent on the regenerative detector, and, when he did finally apply, he omitted the oscillating properties of the circuit. Lee DeForest challenged Armstrong on this invention by submitting a circuit of his own that he claimed he developed in mid-1912. Armstrong initially won based on the fact that DeForest's design was basically uncontrolled feedback. When, however, Armstrong flaunted his court victory, by flying a flag with his patent number on it where DeForest could see it, and when Armstrong refused to grant DeForest a license to manufacture regenerative receivers, DeForest went back to court and this time won. In two separate cases, the Supreme Court ruled that DeForest, not Armstrong, was the inventor of regeneration. This was bad enough, but then Armstrong lost another court battle. Although he had invented the superheterodyne receiver while in France in 1918, it was based partly on a crude, barely functional converter designed by a Frenchman. Despite the obvious superiority of Armstrong's design, the courts ruled against him again. Desperate for a success to reverse these setbacks, Armstrong turned to the idea of FM. At that time, the late 1920s, the concept of FM was known, but it was widely believed that it was impractical, if not impossible. Armstrong, however, proved them wrong, and by 1933-1934 had developed an operational, noise-free, wideband FM system. He offered it to RCA, which had the first right of refusal. RCA, for reasons we will see in a moment, declined to fully develop FM, and Armstrong turned to GE. In Schenectady, he found an ally in W.R.G. Baker, a GE vice president, who saw the potential in FM. With GE's help, he continued to develop FM, got the FCC to allocate a slice of the VHF spectrum for FM broadcasting from 42 to 50 megacycles, and set up his first FM broadcasting station, W2XMN, in Alpine, New Jersey. With two other pioneer FM stations, W1XPW in Meridian, Connecticut, and W2XOY in Schenectady, coming on the air in 1939 and 1940, the new Yankee network was up and running. Armstrong was convinced that, once the war ended, FM would completely replace AM as the broadcasting standard, and he wanted a large chunk of VHF frequencies to accommodate it. Brigadier General David Sarnoff and RCA For the first 45 years of its corporate life, RCA was Sarnoff, and vice versa. From his humble beginnings as a telegraph boy and the wireless operator who copied the Olympic wireless signals about the doomed Titanic, he had risen quickly in the Marconi organization and was with RCA from the start. Sarnoff had watched the progress of his old friend Armstrong as he developed FM. However, he had other plans for RCA. Sarnoff was convinced that television was the future and radio was the past. 
Throughout the 1930s, he had poured millions of RCA's dollars into an all-electronic television system to replace the crude mechanical spinning disc sets that were in the experimental stage. By the late 1930s, he had a viable, all-electronic system ready to go. On April 20, 1939, at the New York World's Fair, Sarnoff introduced commercial television to the world using the slices of VHF spectrum that the FCC had set aside for experimental television. Sarnoff's interest in the VHF frequencies extended beyond obtaining large allocations for television. He also wanted to minimize the frequencies available for FM broadcast. To him, radio was simply radio, an old technology made obsolete by television. He also realized that the public had a limited amount of disposable income available, and he wanted every spare dollar to be spent on TV sets, not FM radios. Sarnoff saw FM broadcasting as a serious threat to his beloved child, and he wasn't going to allow FM to gobble precious VHF frequencies that he felt rightfully belonged to television. William Paley and CBS Although only a supporting player in this drama, William Paley and his CBS network almost changed the course of TV history and, at one point, had both the FCC and the Supreme Court on their side. Paley, through the genius of Peter Goldmark, one of CBS's top engineers, had developed a working color television system with brilliant, lifelike colors more than a decade before the RCA color system was remotely viable. In 1940, as CBS was looking for a way to get past Sarnoff and RCA's stranglehold of patents on their all-electronic black-and-white system, Peter Goldmark came up with the solution. Going back to the 1920s and the mechanical spinning disc, Goldmark developed a hybrid electronic mechanical system using the spinning disc, which CBS now called the color wheel, with red, blue, and green filters, he scanned it with an electron beam. On the receiving end, a similar color wheel, synchronized to spin at the same speed, detected the color signal. On August 28th and September 4th, 1940, CBS gave demonstrations of their color TV system to the FCC. The FCC was very impressed with the vivid, sharp clarity of the colors they saw on the screen. By contrast, RCA's color system was an embarrassing flop. In addition to wanting television to start off directly with color, Goldmark was also convinced that the post-war frequency allocations for TV should be on UHF, not VHF. In fact, CBS was so sure that the UHF color system would be the industry standard that they had no plans at all to apply for any VHF TV license. And so, the players in this drama wait in the wings for their cue to come out on the stage. How will they react to the FCC's first VHF allocations proposal issued in late 1944? Who will live past Act One? Who will make it to the final curtain call? The ancient amateur archives with front row seats will have the answers. Your time is up. Go in peace. But return again for our next installment of the Ancient Amateur Archives. Oh, hello there. This is Bill Barron, N2FNH. Stand by for the Random Access Thought. Coming up in just a few minutes right here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. 
We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Connecting to... The Random Access Thought. Oh, hello there. The other day, while at my place of work on a coffee break, I went into the lounge and watched as a fellow employee sat on an overstuffed couch, gripping a cell phone before her, staring at it quite intently although somewhat perplexed. It was very much apparent that she was still on the upclimb side of the learning curve as to how to properly manipulate this amazing device with its little cosmic blue, a one-inch diagonal screen glowing brightly into her heavily mascaraed face. But it was also clear that she was determined to master this tiny mechanism, a device so small and so tiny that it could easily be dropped into a toilet. It was the same sort of determination that one might see with an amateur radio operator being confronted with a newly purchased dual-band VHF-UHF handheld portable with all of its equally and completely non-intuitive multi-multi-function keypad controls. I wondered if this fellow employee of mine would invest the same amount of time trying to lay conquest to a similar piece of amateur radio gear. They say that amateur radio is an old man's sport, and of course they, whoever they may be, are right. It is indeed an old man's game, where the median age is something like 55, and with relatively few women or teenagers on board willing to devote the time to pass the test for what amounts to access to a free communications medium. It is certainly always easier to pay for a service rather than to study and to learn. They, whoever they may be, also say that amateur radio is a dying art, that we may be the swan song generation to enjoy the magic and the mystery of talking to another soul over a distance without benefit of wires simply because the wireless nature of cordless phones and cell phones is largely taken for granted. And with it, the responsibility of function and daily maintenance now handed over to Verizon, BellSound, and PacBell. And it is always easier to pay for the infrastructure rather than to support the whole thing yourself. Amateur radio might have a chance to bring itself into the top of mindset of the great unwashed by reinventing itself into something completely different than what it appears to be at the moment. The key word here is image. The alleged singer, Madonna, changing musical styles and physical appearance almost as often as she changes her underwear. Maybe the first place to start might be to retire the word radio. Somehow, the Madison Avenue advertising mavens shanghaied an even older word, wireless, and made it a 21st century buzzword. Verizon Wireless, MCI Wireless, all these wirelesses, and Wi-Fi for our computers, too. Maybe we should refer to our equipment not as amateur radio or ham gear, but as HF Wireless, Tech Wireless, or some such other wireless moniker. Maybe Wireless Wireless. Hi there! This is my wireless wireless, even more wireless and cool than your wireless cell phone. Somehow another vintage word video continues to enjoy mass appeal status into the new millennium as well. 
Imagine a masterfully crafted, computer-generated concept commercial playing on MTV or the WB, displaying hip young hipsters with their jeans hanging halfway down their butts, tooling around with dual-band amateur radio handhelds that look more like a Nokia or a Motorola with a bright cosmic blue screen glowing brightly in their heavily nose-pierced faces, or at least something that does not match the kludgy little black or gray-colored Hey, is that a CB radio or what? Squawk box with their fat, much-too-long rubber ducks that we hams wear on our big belly belts. Most stateside hams are not aware of the fact that amateur gear sold in Japan often comes in bright designer colors that we never get to see. But curiously, the John and Jane Q. Publics already adorn their waistlines with brightly colored cell phones and pagers, so why not a brightly colored Kenwood or an Alinko? How about the product placement boost this hobby might get if Ozzy Osbourne was seen on MTV trying to deal with a Kenwood in the same way that he is seen trying to gain mastery over his television remote, his microwave oven, or his 21st century trash compactor? The thing that steals the most discretionary time for adults and teenagers alike is the computer and the internet. Industry analysts say that cell phones will be broadcast TV reception capable, but even the gurus say the TV thing won't be a big draw so much as that it will be just part of the competitively featured bundle offered. So in the end, the future could fall into at least a few pathways. First, that amateur radio is already dead, not only passed over by the now generation, but also by relentless commercial technologies that we are no longer on the forefront of, or at least a part of, and those of us presently licensed are the pallbearers on the way to the funeral. Secondly, that amateur radio will be dead when government-sanctioned broadband overpowerline internet transmissions render the low bands completely unusable with their broadband noise over signal ratios. But it is also a possibility that we hams will survive in smaller numbers where the principal draw will be less the VHF and UHF spectrum which we may someday soon lose and more the attraction of the HF low bands which, despite the archaeologic technologies involved, remains the most unique and intriguing aspect of the hobby. The integration of the internet and amateur radio will certainly continue. We move from the 1200 baud packet radio to the internet gateway to the voice over IP macrocosm of EQSO and Echolink. Full motion video should not be far behind. But the only way to find out how this story continues to unfold is to stay tuned. This is Bill Barron, N2FNH. Disconnecting from... The Random Access Thought. On Sunday, March 1st, dozens of amateur radio volunteers from several states will take part in a three-hour exercise in the northern Florida city of Gainesville. The exercise is designed to test and evaluate skills, assets, and strategies for emergency communication, such as those that might be needed in the aftermath of a hurricane. The exercise is being organized by the North Florida Amateur Radio Club and the Gainesville Amateur Radio Society as part of the third annual Amateur Radio Emergency Communications Conference, held on Saturday and Sunday, February 29th and March 1st. This year's hot and cold exercise scenario is based on hypothetical high-pressure natural gas pipeline ruptures and subsequent fires, as well as a loss of electrical power during an extreme cold weather event. The sudden widespread event then caused telecommunications failures and undersea cables to develop, with widespread communication systems overloading and failing. 
Collaborating amateur radio emergency communications conference lecturers have created a more than 200-page manual for the multi-track training sessions on Saturday. Participants will get to put what they learned into practice the next day as they fan out to seven assigned simulated shelter locations and the Alacuja County Emergency Operations Center. UK telecommunications regulator Ofcom has said it will no longer issue two-letter suffix call signs to full license holders. Since mid-2018, radio amateurs attaining the highest class license have been able to supply for short call signs such as M5XX. The policy has provided a major incentive to upgrade. Ofcom said call signs with only two letters in the suspects are only available to applicants who previously held them. The change in policy affects the granting of old amateur radio call signs issued prior to World War II, but does not affect call signs Ofcom has already issued. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. This is the propagation forecast for Friday, February 28th. The sun has been remarkably quiet with no sunspots and no coronal holes in its atmosphere. That's almost uncommon. This is expected to continue well into next week, which translates into the possibility of excellent conditions on 160, 80, and 60 meters in the days to come. If you're able to get on these bands, now is the time to do so. On VHF and UHF, conditions have been quiet as well. If you live in Virginia or North Carolina, there are some tropo openings in the forecast over the next several days, but they're likely to be limited. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. On our mini de-expedition list for grids, we have Ron, AD0DX, Doug, N6UA, and Josh, W3ARD, all operating from Big Bend National Park in grid DL88 from March 16th through the 17th. David, AD7DB, will be hitting DM19 on March 21st. However, on his way there on March 20th, he will hit DM06, DM16, DM07, DM08, DM-17, and DM-18. On the way home, March 22nd, he'll hit those grids again. China is beginning to build a space station. There will be living space in the core module of about 1,750 cubic feet. There will be two lab capsules, increasing the living space to approximately 3,900 cubic feet. Water vapor exhaled by the astronauts will be recovered by condensation, Drinking water will be provided by purifying urine. China is no stranger to spaceflight. They have had 11 manned spacecraft and one cargo spacecraft, which sent 11 astronauts into space. Completion of the space station is predicted to be 2022. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. 
A new antenna arrived recently on the International Space Station from the United Kingdom, and it will make communications home that much easier for the astronauts. Astronauts on board the ISS are looking forward to being able to make contact with their families and with scientists using home broadband speeds. A new communications antenna manufactured by MDA UK was delivered to the ISS earlier this month aboard a Cygnus freighter and marks the UK's first industrial contribution to the space station. In just a few weeks, the new antenna will be installed on the outside of Europe's ISS science module, where it is expected to help deliver improved radio links. It will route video, voice, and data to the ground, making use of satellites that are actually in a higher orbit than the station itself. David Kenyon, the managing director of MDA UK, based in Oxfordshire, recently told the BBC that for now, communications from Columbus will continue to go through the American data relay satellites. He noted, however, that those satellites are prioritized for U.S. use. In DX News, Alex Grammy, 5B4ALX, has postponed his March 18th T30ET expedition to Tarawa because of the coronavirus outbreak. The Kiribati Ministry of Health told Grammy that he would need to be quarantined for 14 days in Honiara, Solomon Islands, before getting medical approval to continue on to Kiribati. He's now looking at October 2020, assuming the coronavirus situation is resolved by then. Last week, travel restrictions imposed on individuals entering American Samoa as a result of the coronavirus outbreak caused Swain's Island W8S de-expedition organizers to postpone that de-expedition until later in the year. Fortunately, the VP8PJ de-expedition to South Orkney Islands is on the air and seeing heavy activity. They plan to continue operating until March 6th. Throughout the month of March, you can also work 6W7-ON4AVT in Senegal, primarily on FT8 and FT4. V47JA is still on the air from Calypso Bay, St. Kitts and Nevis, and will be there until March 5th. If you need Tanzania, listen for 5H3DX on 40 through 10 meters until March 21st. You have just a few more days to work JD1BON from Ogasawara. They'll be shutting down on March 5th. And P29NC is available from Papua New Guinea, but only until March 1st. For special event operations, this weekend listen for WA4CZD from Sparta, Tennessee for Rare Disease Day. Also this weekend, N0N will be on the air from Lincoln, Nebraska for Nebraska Statehood Day. Looking ahead, W5S will be celebrating the venerable C-47 Skytrain aircraft from Oklahoma City starting on March 5th. For complete details, see page 83 in the March issue of QST Magazine. A working-scale model of an HF curtain array antenna is on display at the National Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting in Westchester, Ohio. The model, which operates on 70 centimeters, is a 4x2 design with a screen reflector and is in the same style of antenna the VOA Bethany Relay Station used until its final transmission in October of 1994. The Westchester Amateur Radio Association, WC8VOA members Richard Kreider, WC8RK, and Joe Burke, WA8OGS, designed and constructed this curtain array. 
EZ-NC Pro 4 models indicate the antenna has a gain of 21.35 dBi at 8 degrees at a half wavelength above the ground. The club thanked Roy Lewallen, W7EL, for modeling the array. The museum and WC8VOA will be open for extended hours during Dayton Hamvention for those interested in seeing the model. A new distance record on 122 gigahertz of 86.2 miles is being claimed by radio amateurs in Northern California. This tops the record of 114 kilometers set in 2005 by WA1ZMS and W4WWQ, according to the distance records on the ARRL website. The February 17, 2020 contact was between Mike Lavelle, K6ML, on Mount Vaca at 2,739.5 feet above sea level, and Oliver Barrett, KB6BA, and Jim Moss, N9JIM, both on Mount Umanum at 3,333.3 feet. Lavelle reports the path loss was about 225 dB and atmospheric loss was approximately 0.35 dB per kilometer. The stations employed 60-centimeter satellite TV dishes and ran less than half a milliwatt. Motorola has come out on top, winning nearly $765 million in compensation after a federal jury in Chicago found that Chinese giant Hytera Communications had stolen Motorola Solutions trade secrets and also for copyright infringement. The award announcement on Friday, February 14th is the full amount the company had been seeking and includes $345.8 million in compensatory damages and $418.8 million in punitive damages. Motorola claimed the Chinese company stole its trade secrets along with its copyrighted source code for the manufacture of its digital two-way radios. Its original complaint was filed in March 2017. Motorola has always invested significantly in research and development to bring pioneering and beneficial technology to our customers around the world. In contrast, Hytera was simply profiting off the hard work and innovation of our world-class engineers. The jury's verdict validates our global litigation against Hytera by definitively affirming that stealing trade secrets and source code will not be tolerated. During the trial, Motorola said evidence was presented that alleged Hytera had stolen over 10,000 Motorola confidential documents, millions of lines of Motorola's highly confidential source code, and took steps to conceal its theft to avoid detection. Hytera attorneys said they planned to appeal. The Chinese company filed an antitrust lawsuit against Motorola in December 2017, accusing Motorola in driving out the competition in the DMR marketplace. Hytera, a former distributor of Motorola radios, has acknowledged hiring engineers who formerly worked there. Hytera has said, however, that it developed its radios independently. Meanwhile, Motorola's attorneys have vowed to seek an order halting sale of Hytera radios in the United States. The company is also planning to ask for a worldwide injunction preventing Hytera from further copyright infringement and use of stolen trade secrets. Motorola Solutions also has a patent infringement case pending against Hytera. The trial is expected to commence later this year or early next year. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net.
foundations of amateur radio. In my day-to-day -day activities as a radio amateur, I come in contact with people across all parts of their amateur journey. Some who don't yet know that they're amateurs, through to those who've just passed their test and are waiting for their call sign. Then there are those who have been amateurs for a while, experimented a bit and have settled down into the comfort of being a member of an active community. Stretch that further and I also spend regular quality time with amateurs who've been licensed longer than I've been alive. Recently I received an email from a freshly minted amateur, just like me, still pretty much wet behind the ears, keen as mustard, trying very hard to figure out what to do next and where to go. The basic gist of the email from this amateur was that they didn't know what kind of antenna they could erect at their home, and, failing that, couldn't decide on what radio to acquire to match the antenna that they hadn't decided on, not to mention that the antenna needed to match the radio that didn't yet exist. If you've been around this community for a while, you might recognise the chicken and the egg, which comes first, the antenna or the radio. The answer is obvious, hidden in plain sight, easy to deduce, simple to understand and completely useless. Let me help you with the answer. It depends. If that didn't test your patience, even if you've been an amateur for longer than my parents have been alive, you'll know that this is an unanswerable question. So how do you break the egg and get started? Easy. Start somewhere. As it happens, I have a recommendation. It's cheap, simple, and it will get your feet wet sooner rather than later. My recommendation is neither, or both, depending on your perspective. I promise I'll get to the point shortly. The reason I'm making it last and savouring the point, some might say belabouring it, is because it's one that happens over and over again, day in, day out, year in, year out. My recommendation is that you spend $25 on an RTL SDR dongle and hunt around your home for a piece of wire. That's it. If you're not familiar with an RTL SDR dongle, it's essentially a USB thumb drive sized device that plugs into the nearest computer and paired with the correct software, it has access to many, if not all of the frequencies that you as an amateur are allowed to play with. Given that it's a receiver, the antenna doesn't really matter all that much, at least not initially, so any piece of conductive wire will suit. Most dongles even come with an antenna of sorts, so you can get started straight away. Resources associated with this podcast are on the vk6flab.com website, where I've also collected a few links under FTROOP to get you on your way with an RTL-SDR dongle. The purest radio amateurs will likely arc up at this point and mention that this isn't real amateur radio, to which I can only say, bah humbug. Radio is about receiving as much as it is about transmitting. Any fool with two bits of wire can transmit, but it takes finesse to receive. So start there. There are other benefits from going this way. Other than ease of entry, that's another way of saying cheap, you can easily spot where and when there is activity. You can use all the traditional modes like CW, SSB, AM and FM, but you can also play with all of the new modes like Whisper, FT8, JT65, and investigate some of the other modes like RITI, PSK31, Olivia, SSTV and others. All this will help you have a better idea of the landscape you're stepping into without a major purchase. To really set a cat among the pigeons, I'm also looking into a Raspberry Pi-based transmitter, RPITX by Everest Foxtrot 5 Oscar Echo Oscar.
When that bears fruit, I'll let you know. In the meantime, play, learn, listen, experiment. No need to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars while you're still unsure. Even if you already have a lovely amateur station, an RTL SDR dongle is worth every cent. And then some. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo. The ARRL is seeking an experienced radio amateur to be Chief Executive Officer, or CEO, at its headquarters in Newington, Connecticut. The CEO is the top compensated employee in ARRL's management structure and oversees all operations in collaboration with the President and the Board of Directors in accordance with ARRL's Articles of Association, Bylaws, and Board Policies. The successful candidate will ensure day-to-day management of ARRL, including fiscal operations, and will oversee and make certain that its fundraising, marketing, human resources, technology, advocacy, and governance strategies are effectively implemented. Essential Chief Executive Officer functions include leading the headquarters staff and field volunteers in response to board policy, in the development and implementation of effective programs for the promotion and growth of amateur radio and the provision of services to members, planning, developing, organizing, implementing, directing, and evaluating ARRL's operational performance and fiscal compliance, providing leadership, directing headquarters staff, and maintaining performance standards in headquarters operations, participating in collaboration with officers, directors, and staff in developing ARRL's plans and programs. The successful candidate will be a strategic thinker with a record of significant amateur radio experience and a broad understanding of its operational, technical, regulatory, and social facets. The CEO will be responsible for effective financial and operational management and oversight. CEO candidates should possess a bachelor's degree or equivalent master's degree preferred, be an active radio amateur who has initiated or led a significant amateur radio activity within the past 10 years, and have 10 years of management and supervisory experience. Candidates should be able to demonstrate ability in providing effective leadership and management of business operations. The position is located at ARRL headquarters, and the successful candidate will be required to establish a residence in the Hartford, Connecticut area. The Chief Executive Officer position announcement includes details. Interested candidates should submit a cover letter and resume via email to ARRL Human Resources Assistant Monique Levesque. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. Replacing rotors on towers is not a fun job. 
They usually sat for a long time before we decided to replace them, so the bolts and screws will surely be nicely rusted. I know, I have one on my tower right now too. I've done this job a few times in the past, so let's look at the three primary types of installations. From my experience, rotors are mostly installed inside the tower near the bottom or inside the tower near the top. They can also be on the top of the tower outside of the tower frame. By far the worst one to work with is the last, the rotor on the very top and outside of the tower. If you do not have the proper gear, tools, strength and experience, I recommend you hire someone with a cherry picker to do this job for you. If you have the expertise to safely perform this task the way I do them, after deciding the tower is strong enough to survive the job, I mount clamps to the side of the tower, remove the mast from the rotor and slide it into my temporary clamps, swap out the rotor and reinstall the antenna mast into the new rotor. This has to be done on a windless day. As an added precaution on smaller TV antenna grade towers, I always add temporary guy ropes to secure the tower from the tremendous shaking and stresses one of these rotor swap out jobs can put on any tower. If the tower is a fold over type or a roof mount type, I usually refuse to do the job unless the tower is guyed at every 10 to 15 feet with steel cable. I have never done work on a fold over tower above the hinge and neither should you. On towers where the rotor is inside the tower, there is usually some plate or place to install a U-bolt clamp above the rotor. Then I loosen the clamps that hold the mast inside the top of the rotor, slide up the mast, and now tighten the bolts on the U-bolt above the rotor to keep the mast from sliding back down into the rotor. A suitable temporary clamp, which can hold some weight, is a hefty vice grip pliers. On towers without a clamping plate of some type above the rotor, I have used the 2x4 stuffed into the tower in its place. Essentially, the rotor removal job is the same process regardless of the location of the rotor inside the tower, either at the bottom or at the top. If the rotor is inside the tower near the top, bending the mast pipe is the big risk. So always insert a wooden doll rod inside the mast pipe to prevent bending. The doll rod should be close to the same size as the inside of the mast pipe or it won't prevent bending. These are generally available at your local hardware store. Otherwise, a fat broom handle may fit inside the mast pipe just fine too. Some people insert a second steel pipe that is a tight fit inside the section of mast pipe that passes through the top of the tower and pin it to keep it in place. When replacing the rotor, another trip to the hardware store should be done first to replace all those cheaply plated screws, nuts and bolts with stainless steel parts. This may be time consuming, but you'll be thankful you took the time years down the road when the new rotor is ready to retire. Otherwise, you'll become an expert with a hacksaw on the tower, which ain't fun. If you decide to hire this job out, be sure to check the yellow pages for companies that trim trees. Their work is largely seasonal, so you may be able to negotiate a lower price for the work if you are willing to wait maybe even months for the truck and be ready to go when they call you and tell you that today is your lucky day. From my experience, tree service people are generally cheaper than TV antenna service places too. One topic I already mentioned which is worth repeating, never work on a standing fold over tower above the hinge. 
Never climb a base foldover or roof-mounted tower that is not guide every 10 to 15 feet. Best bet is to never climb any foldover tower. You should add temporary guides to any light-duty TV antenna tower. And lastly, do what I do. When someone asks you to climb their tower for them, always tell them you reserve the right to stop the job at any time for any reason if you feel your safety is in question and you will not argue or debate about restarting a job which was stopped for safety concerns. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. The NEMO-1 Whisper Buoy, launched by AMSAT Argentina on January 30th, was retrieved 12 days later by a fishing vessel. The buoy transmitted Whisper on 14.0956 MHz and APRS on VHF-FM using the call sign LU-7AA. The captain of the tuna vessel, Juan Pablo Segundo, considered that the buoy was partially submerged, decided to retrieve it, and informed AMSAT Argentina. The Nemo-1 traveled another eight days aboard the tuna vessel, arriving at Mar de Plata on February 19th, where members of the Mar de Plata radio club were holding it until members of AMSAT Argentina could recover it. The buoy will be reconditioned, and a new launch is planned, this time taking the buoy more than 200 kilometers, or 124 miles offshore, so that it will navigate freely. Created by amateurs for amateurs, you're listening to the latest amateur radio news and more on North America's premier bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio. The Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, is proposing to require remote identification of so-called unmanned aircraft systems, which include drones and hobby aircraft. A growing number of radio amateurs utilize camera-equipped drones for aerial photography purposes to examine antenna systems and to operate hobby aircraft remotely on amateur radio frequencies. Comments on the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking in NPRM Docket FAA 2019-11 are due by March 2nd. The remote identification of unmanned aircraft systems in the airspace of the United States would address safety, national security, and law enforcement concerns regarding the further integration of these aircraft into the airspace of the United States, while also enabling greater operational capabilities, the FAA said in proposing the new requirements. The FAA defines remote identification, or remote ID, as the ability of an in-flight unmanned spacecraft to provide certain identification and location information that people on the ground and other airspace users can receive. The FAA called the move an important building block in the unmanned traffic management ecosystem. For example, the ability to identify and locate unmanned aircraft systems operating in the airspace of the United States provides additional situational awareness to manned and unmanned aircraft, the FAA said. This will become even more important as the number of UAS operations in all classes of airspace increases. In addition, the ability to identify and locate a UAS provides critical information to law enforcement and other officials charged with ensuring public safety. The FAA said it envisions that the Remote Identification Network will form the foundation for the development of other technologies that can enable expanded operations. 
With few exceptions, all unmanned aircraft systems operating in U.S. airspace would be subject to the rules requirements and would have to comply, regardless of whether they conduct recreational or commercial operations, except those flying UAS that are not otherwise required to be registered under the FAA's existing rules. To comment, click on the Submit a Formal Comment button on the top of the Federal Register page that includes the NPRM text on the FAA website. And finally this week, if you need encouragement to upgrade, how about this story? George Buckminer, K6RFE of Sun City, Arizona, has been an active ham since earning his first license in 1956 upgrading to a general class license 10 months later. It wasn't until January 26th, however, that he upgraded to Amateur Extra at the age of 94. Miner began losing his sight at a young age and became totally blind when he was 27. That never slowed him down, however. Over the intervening years, he repaired TVs and sold, repaired, and installed two-way radios. He even managed a 200-acre ranch on the northern California coast where he fished and dived for abalone. Miner was a local celebrity, too, producing and hosting a live radio show in Eureka, California, Chuck Starr and his rambling guitar, on which he told stories, sang, and played guitar. To survive living alone, he learned to cook for himself and has produced several Bucks Miracle Kitchen YouTube videos, that humorously demonstrate how he cooks without sight. Miner has written several books, including an autobiography, My Darkness Under the Sun. He's also composed hundreds of songs, including CQ Boogie, and he continues to play his guitar and sing for fun and profit. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates, Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates, Incorporated. All rights reserved.